Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. With me, as always, is Charles W. Chuck Bryant. And uh, that makes this Stuff You Should Know. Is your seat okay? Frank, the chair is letting me down again. He'll do that. What a jerk. He uh, recently fell in with a bad crowd. And yeah. I suspect he might be on drugs. I do, too, from the way he's making me sit. Yeah. So I'll just I'll lean forward. He's become unreliable. Who is it that messes with him? I don't know. Somebody who has no idea how to sit in a chair properly. That's what you <laughs> need to get next. Not just your own mic cover, but your own chair. Yeah, I think it's a Strickland guy from Tech Stuff. You know, it'd be very cool as if you had it lower down from the ceiling, like it was stored up there. Yeah. And it'd hang like the sword of Damocles over everybody else's head while they were recording. (laughs) I would love that. We'll look into that. All right. Chuck. Yes. Have you ever heard of a little place called the Massachusetts Institute of Technology? Yeah, sure. Good school. Okay. Yeah. Go eggheads. (laughs) Um, So MIT's like the, the hotbed, the center of the linguistics field, oh, yeah? among many other fields. I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, Noam Chomsky is there. Oh, well, that all makes sense then. Um, and there's another guy whose name escapes me right now, but he recently made some headlines because he, I guess, got a grant and had his house wired with fisheye cameras. Awesome. In every room with really high-tech audio equipment too. And from the moment his... Newborn son came home to the age of five. This guy recorded 90,000 hours. Wow. The, the whole five years of this kid's life um, in an effort to see how language acquisition develops in children. That's pretty cool. And this child specifically. It is very cool. There's a um, really clumsily titled um, Fast Company article called MIT Scientist Captures 90,000 Hours of Video of His Son's First Words. Comma, graphs it. <laughs> Comma what? Graphs it. He gra- oh, yeah. And then he graphs it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's so clumsily titled. This. The editor was know. like, I'm going home. Yeah, exactly. So, um, but anyway, there's some video and some audio clips in there where you can hear like this condensed, like over five years or over like a six month period or something like that. That's like cool. the kid going from like gaga to water. Yeah. And you can hear it like evolve. Interesting. Did they learn anything from that? I don't know if they have quite yet. And plus, I mean, like this is. One child. Yeah, sure. But it's at the very least very, very interesting. Yeah. Um, but the, the idea that you can learn something about the evolution of language in human beings from language acquisition in children is a hotly contested idea. It is. Um, you wrote what I think is a very fine article. Thanks. You did a good job with this. How did language evolve? It was a shorty. You were talking about though, not how we acquire language skills as as um, kids, but as a species, how sure. did humans acquire language? Because we're the only ones that can say things like this. Yeah. But you go to great lengths to point out that we're not the only ones that communicate. True. I wouldn't say great lengths. It was sort of a clumsy intro. It was like honest. two or three sentences. Sure. Animals communicate. Ah. Well, no, it is. It is very true. I think it was a good thing to start off with because humans can often be very um, homocentric. True. You know? Yeah, yeah. So you say birds chirp. 
<laughs> Porpoises go, right? Yeah. Uh, they are communicating, but we're the only ones who can verbalize. That's right. Right? Yes. We talk words. And we don't know exactly how this evolved, for sure, because um, there's a problem when it comes to things like evolution. There's not a ton of evidence a lot of times. I know. Like hard evidence. Um I read this one guy's uh, paper. There's a lot of papers on this. Yeah, this is a really... First of all, I want you to just be very quiet. Do you hear that off in the distance? That explosion? Yes. We're standing in the midst of a minefield. <laughs> linguistics is a minefield. And they love... Ling- like, linguistics people really love language and talking about it. Like And putting down people who disagree with them. Yeah, So true. we should tread lightly here. If you we ask should. Me. Um, but one guy's paper that I read today, some university paper, he said that ideally, if we're going to study something like these neurological changes that happen in the brain, mm-hmm. we would have, um, a large number of petrified whole brains representing lots of species over lots of time. Right. But we don't have that. No. Unfortunately, there are big gaps. Yeah. Uh, and have- even, even, even not taking into account gaps, we don't have fossilized brains. Yeah. The closest thing we have is a fossilized skull, sure. which we can analyze and be like, well, there is kind of room for a big enough brain maybe for language. Right? Yeah. What's that called? Cranial endocasting? Nice. I think so. That um, a lot. That's, a, that's a good term for it. And people won't even know if I'm wrong. <laughs> right. Um, what they do have a little bit of uh, evidence on is that uh, the shape of our vocal tract mm-hmm. um wasn't until about a hundred thousand years ago. Wasn't able to ma- even able to make um, the the vocalizations of the modern speech sounds. So oh, we, yeah. So it wasn't even possible. Although that doesn't necessarily mean there wasn't language, because it just could have been a much more primitive version of what evolved. Of grunts. Yeah, exactly. And I did see someone, even though I saw this was poo pooed by most people. Uh, some people think that uh, sp- spoken language evolved from sign language. And that our modern gestures are a holdover from that, which I thought was interesting. But most people go, nah, that's not true. Um, I ran into another one. And what you're talking about um, for everybody listening is called a proto-language. Yeah. And evidence of a proto-language supports one theory, which we'll talk about in a minute. But um, one idea for a proto-language is that we started talking using onomatopoeia. Oh, really? Which would make snap, crackle, and pop like the oldest words on Earth, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um but well, I guess we should probably get into it now. Like, what are there are basically two competing theories for how we acquire language as a species, right? Yeah, and I like both of them. I noticed at the end you're like, why can't we all just get along? <laughs> yeah. As far as linguistics goes, because I'm not a linguist, and so I'm not going to sit here and poo poo and argue because <laughs> um, I'm not smart enough. I don't know enough about it. Okay. But uh, the first, uh, Josh, is. Um, that we adapted to survive, so we learn how to speak. Right. And that's kind of the simplest way to say it. Um, the example I gave in here is, uh, and then we'll talk about who, you know, who are the leaders in this whole category that believe this, but uh, tuk-tuk's hunting on the range, on the plains, mm-hmm. on the savannah, yeah. and tuk-tuk, um, <clears throat> thunder scares away the deer, so tuk-tuk goes hungry. Right. So then later on, Tuk Tuk has already maybe learned to grunt about like the deer being being nearby to his buddy 
Who's his friend? Did we name ever name a friend? Oh, Mort. <laughs> Morty. Yeah. <laughs> so he's already learned how to tell Morty that deer nearby. So shut up. Right. Because <laughs> Morty talks to him. <laughs> Just incessantly. Yeah. Uh, so now all of a sudden he learns that uh, thunder and bad weather might scare deer away. So he goes hungry. So he learns. Now I've got to learn like what bad weather looks like coming in and how to tell Morty hey, pick up the pace, dude, because bad weather's coming and we don't want to go hungry again. So that was just one of the stepping stones in evolving speech. Right, and it's kind of like um, the the idea behind it is that the speech evolved out of combinations of these things, like you're saying. Yeah. So you put them together and all of a sudden, huh, that makes a lot of sense. I'm able to describe some larger portion of the world around us. Yeah, and it's since got more complex, the language had to, like right. as they learned more things. Right, like we settled down and sure. agriculture would have had like a huge impact on something like that. Yeah, and keeping children alive, apparently. Like once we settled in villages, a lot of people think that language really took a leap forward because we had to you know, keep the species alive by protecting the kids. Huh. Um, I guess also the, the idea that you could warn somebody about something, right? Sure. That isn't necessarily just something you could point at right. and be like, you know, let's get out of here through gesture. Right. Something maybe further away, something that you couldn't see right then. That would that would lead directly to um to a trait that was that led to survival, yeah. which is the whole basis of natural selection. Exactly. Which means that people who could do that would be able to go reproduce and that trait would survive and be passed along. And I imagine <clears throat> reproduction and all needed its own language as well. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like, hey, mama. <laughs> Although in Quest for Fire, it pretty much just happened. Did it? I haven't seen that in so long. I think that was the first movie I ever saw in Showtime. And yeah, there wasn't a lot of words going on. It was like, you know, the ladies are down by the river bending over, f- filling up water buckets and or, you know, water pods. Okay. And man comes along and just, you know. Takes care of business. Gotcha. Yeah. Is that uh, is that an ancient phrase? Takes care of business. TCB. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I remember Quest for Fire and another movie um, were out on Showtime at about the same time. This movie is called Caveman, and yeah. it starred Ringo Starr. Is that whose picture that is in this article? Yeah. Don't you like my caption? Yeah. That's I couldn't I couldn't <laughs> tell just by looking at it, but um, yeah, the caption I think is what gave it away. These were the old days where I would like. The highlight of my week was writing really clever picture captions to articles. <laughs> I would go home and say, look at this one, Emily. It's like, pretty good. Someone might get this joke. So there's a production still of uh, from Caveman of Ringo Starr standing there, and the caption is, this cave by caveman gets by with a little help from his friends. <laughs> Beautiful. So Matt, guest producer Matty Schnickerton. Matt yeah. So that's adaptation theory, that basically we figured out that we could survive better and more robustly by talking to one another, and language evolved as in fits and starts through there, right? Yeah, and who, who's Gradually, I should say, gradually. Yes. Um, and that's Steven Pinker, who's a great dude. Yeah, Pinker and Bloom in their paper, Natural Language and Natural Selection. Uh, I mean, there are a lot of people who agree with them and have written, quote, unquote, the book on this since then. Oh, yeah, or several books. Yeah. It's very dense subject. <laughs> yeah. Makes my mind melt a little bit. Um, and Pinker and Bloom basically say, uh, this is the case. It makes sense. Mm-hmm. This is just standard Darwinian natural selection. What's the problem? 
I don't have a problem with it. Why doesn't everybody just get on board? <laughs> uh, well, because there's another competing theory, and there are all sorts of sub-theories, but these are the two big big daddies. Um, and this is Noam, Noam Chomsky and um, evolutionary biologist Stephen Jay Gould. And they think that it was a spandrel right, or an acceptation. So you know what a spandrel is? Well, in biology or for real? In architecture. Yeah. But please explain. <laughs> okay. Well, Stephen Jay Gould um, coined the term spandrel, as you point out in the article. Yeah. Um, and it's just perfect, actually, in this application because a spandrel, architecturally speaking, is um, this triangular area that inevitably is created when you put two arched domes next to one another at right angles. Right. And it looks like, if you're looking at it, it looks like purposeful design, like ornamentation. Sure. But it's actually a byproduct you can't get around. And that's what a spandrel is, as far as Gould is concerned. It's the product of another evolutionary process, right? Yeah. And language, supposedly, was, as far as Gould and Chomsky are concerned, just kind of came about as a result of other stuff, specifically tool-making. Yeah. Darwin calls it pre-adaptation mm-hmm. and later became acceptation. And Which one do you like more, pre-adaptation or acceptation? Acceptation is a little hard to say, so I'm going to go with pre-adaptation. But it, it sounds so, like, important, though. It does, actually. You know? um, but a quick example of that, and this is the one most often cited, is that uh, there's a theory out there that bird feathers were originally meant to keep birds warm, yeah. and flying came about after that as a spandrel. Makes sense. Sure. What's um, the problem? Exactly. Uh, so you said that our brains adapted to where we could, they got larger to where we could make tools and things. Right. And language came about because of a result of that. And this isn't just kind of, I mean, it's not like they're like, well, we can run so we can talk. Um, there's right. specific areas of the brain that are associated with both tool making and tool use mm-hmm. and language. Right. Um and there's actually two. There's um, Broca's area and there's Wernicke's area. Yeah. And Broca's area was named after um, a French neurosurgeon named Paul Broca. And in 1861, he um, described a patient named Tan. And Tan wasn't the guy's real name. No one knew his real name. Um, was he Tan? He was. He, the only thing, the only syllable he could pronounce that he could form was Tan. Oh, okay. So they're like, well, that's your name, pal. <laughs> Um, and after he died, Broca opened up his skull and looked at his brain and found a huge lesion on the area now named Broca's area. Okay. And that's come to be associated with speech production. The weird thing about Tan was he could understand spoken language. If you're like, Tan, you look, um, you look kind of tan. I think maybe you should stay out of the sun. He could know to stay out of the sun. He wasn't, there wasn't anything wrong with him other than he could not produce speech. Boy, I bet he was really ticked off with his name then. If all he can yeah. say is Tan, they're like, we'll just call you Tan. And right. in his head, he was probably like, no. Right, yeah. It's Ignatius. Anything but Tan. Yeah, I mean, I, I imagine the guy probably was like uh, you know, half mad by the time he died, sure. just out of frustration. Well, stroke patients, you know, my grandfather uh, had a stroke and tried to speak. In his head, he was saying words, but right. it would come out as gobbledygook, and he would get really frustrated. It was very sad. So now, that was your grandfather? Yeah. So what it sounds like your grandfather um, had a problem with was his Wernicke's area. Yeah. And that was named after a German neurosurgeon who found that um, his patients who could speak 
but they weren't making any sense had lesions on the area now known as Wernicke's area. So if you put the two together, Broca's area, yeah. which is involved in speech production, and Wernicke's area, which is involved with um, speech comprehension, language comprehension, you have normally talking people like us. Yes. And we first saw uh, Wernicke's area. I think it was Ricky Wernicke. Isn't that <laughs> the guy? Uh, Wernicke's area and Broca's area. Um, and the temporal, parietal, and uh, occipital lobes of the brain physically connected for the first time in homo habilis or habilis. So wait, what was it? What's that called where you examine skulls to see if there was probably some brain there? Um, I believe that is called cranial endocasting. Nice. I think so. So they think that um, that this this would make a lot of sense if homo habilis um, was the first one to talk because... They also often associate Homo habilis as the first one to use tools. Right. This is this is in question. I found. Oh, really? Recently, it's come under question Ooh. that possibly um, the oldest tools, the Oldowan tools, which are like um, scrapers, hammers, mm-hmm. um, I think uh, brain crushers. Right. Basically, just stone tools that right. are used to like skin meat off a bone. They're like two point three million years old. They think that they might be slightly older than Homo habilis. Wow. Then the other problem with linking language in humans and Homo habilis is we're not in, we're not 100% sure we're on habilis's same tree. Oh, really? Yeah. But nonetheless, Homo habilis does have the cute nickname, a handyman. I've never heard that either. Because he's supposedly the first tool users. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. It's better than Bob the Builder. Yeah. But there's still that that link right there between tool use and um, language, right? Which they think is makes uh, him and her much more advanced than the uh, Australopithecus, mm-hmm. who came before Homo habilis. Right. So um, the whole reason why this is important is because they're trying to nail down where language first came about. Right. And if you subscribe to Gould and Chomsky, it just all of a sudden, it was there, and people were talking to each other. Yeah, it was like one one mutation happened, and then all of a sudden, people were able to speak. Yeah, and they were like, oh, man, I've been wanting to get some stuff off my chest for generations. <laughs> right. Um, if you listen to Pinker and Bloom, or you know what? I feel bad for Bloom. If you listen to Bloom and Pinker. Sure. Um, I mean, we know about that, don't we? Yeah. Uh, if you listen to Bloom and Pinker, then it took... You know, a very long time for language to evolve in uh, gradually sure. by putting combinations together. The thing is, Gould, before he died, said, you know what? There is not nearly enough time for language to evolve. Right. And what's more, if there was some sort of gradual evolution of language, then chimps should show some sort of propensity toward language. Chimps, well, they do, though. They do, but apparently not in any way that any linguist who's sane would would call actual language the beginnings of language. Right. Um, it's communication, but not actual language. Right, like you mentioned at the beginning of the article. Sure. But um, Bloom and Pinker point out, so chimps and humans diverged mm-hmm. about 6 million years ago. Right. That's 300,000 generations for language to evolve. That's plenty of time, they say. Sure. And Gould from Beyond the Grave says, no, it's not. <laughs> Is he dead? Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, you know what Pinker actually said about that in his defense was, look at the Hyrax, H-Y-R-A-X. It is um, because people say, well, we share 98% of the DNA. 
the hyrax shares 98% of the DNA with the African elephant. Mm-hmm. And if you look at a hyrax, it looks like a large rat. Oh, yeah. It looks nothing like an elephant. So he's like, just because you share all that DNA doesn't mean that you're going to evolve the exact same way. Yeah. So that makes sense. Yeah. And some people pose, and I sort of agree, that they're not mutually exclusive. Yes. You don't have to have one without the other. Uh, it may have been acceptation. And then from that point, it may have very much been a matter of natural selection because the better you were at communicating, the better you were at surviving. Right. I like that idea. I do too. Um, I don't think that though, if you put Steven Pinker and, um, Noam Chomsky in the same room, no, uh, that they would be like, you know, this, this all, this works together. Sure. I think like they're tracing it back to the origin point, the moment where it began, either as a, either it began to evolve or it just appeared as a result of a incredibly sophisticated machine that just started performing another function. Yeah. As a result of its sophistication. And it's all kind of conjecture anyway. But there's still, I mean, there's still support. There's sure. support for different ones like, um, like, uh, brain plasticity, neuroplasticity. The fact that our, our brains can be restructured and reorganized supports the idea that language evolved gradually, right? Yeah, and true. it just started to build and build and build. And possibly that's how our brains became larger. Right. The chicken and the egg thing. But people also say, like, if large brain equals things like speech, then why don't, like, whales and things like that with much larger brains yeah. have things like speech? That's another great uh, argument, too. Uh, and then mirror neurons. Um, kind of lend support to the idea that it's just f- it's just a, a, a spandrel of brain function because tool making mm-hmm. and um, and speech both use the same areas, right? Oh yeah. And then both um, and then tool making lights up when you watch somebody use tools and when you're using tools yourself in the Broca's area. Interesting. Yeah. Our old friends the mirror neurons. Yeah, they're back. You got anything else? I bet you do. There's a lot of scribbling over there. Oh, yeah. So one of Chomsky's big um, points is that uh, that grammar or that language is innate, which makes it biological, not cultural. Okay. Um, is universal grammar, which is that like if he always says that if, if a Martian anthropologist came down and studied all human languages, that he, would, he would reasonably conclude that all of that information is based on an internal structure rather than culture, basically. Hmm. Um, and the the key to universal grammar, supposedly, is recursion, which is like me saying, like, I'm going to go to the store, the one down the street, you know, the one that has the really good hot dogs. I'll be back in a little bit. It's taking um, – it's adding phrases within phrases. Right. There's no other um, – there's no other – communication in any animal species that would include this, which makes that human, and supposedly all human languages contain recursion, except there's a challenger now called Paraha. What's it's that? Amazonian. There's like 500 people who speak it. Really? 501, including the one um, MIT-trained uh, linguist who studied it for 30 years and is the only one wow. who knows it, who's now saying... This thing, they don't have recursion, so universal grammar is wrong. Therefore, Chomsky's whole thing is wrong. There's a pretty cool article on it on um, Chronicle of Higher Education that's worth reading called Angry Words. Are they trying to save that language? Um, you know, that's a big deal right now is disappearing languages. And- I, I don't think – I think these people are – as far as I got from the article, they seem like they are fine 
there's not that many of them, but right. they're not being encroached upon any further. I think they're protected. Interesting. And they're just kind of living out their, their existence and doing their thing. Actually, Noam Chomsky is in the bushes behind them with the blowgun. With the blowgun. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, that's it. That's all I got. That's good stuff. This How could have been like 10 hours long. Yeah, easy. For linguists out there, they're like, oh, what a broad overview. That's exactly what this is. They're like, bleh. <laughs> um, if you want to learn more and you want to see this picture of Ringo Starr dressed as a caveman, you should read the article written by one Charles W. Bryant called How Did Language Evolve? Uh, type that into the search bar at HowStuffWorks.com and it will bring it up. Uh, and I said search bar, so it's time for listening to me. Uh, Josh, I'm going to call this We Saved Another Life, apparently. Again. <laughs> Uh, hey guys and Jerry, I thought I would, we'll say hey Matt since Matt's here today. Yeah, hey Matt. Uh, I thought I would tell you a little about how your podcast has quite literally saved and changed my life. I'm 17 and live in a small town of Galesburg, Illinois, but consider myself a citizen of the world. Uh, from when I was six months young, ten years after Ghostbusters. Nice. Uh, my family, exactly. My family and I have uh, traveled back and forth from Illinois uh, to Barcelona, Spain every two years. Cool. This last time back in the U.S., I fell in love with your podcast and have listened almost religiously every morning for almost three years. Then one day, my faith was solidified. While listening and walking my dog, Cheapy, I crossed the street. Uh, I should probably COA. Uh, walking, this guy's really hitting all the points I like here. This guy. Um, walking with headphones is a dangerous thing. Uh, if one of you died because of a headphone walking incident, I would never forgive, uh, forgive myself. Back to the story. A car was unbeknownst to me, hurtling down the street at me. I started crossing when all of a sudden, buzz, how flies work, had just begun. Remember the loud buzz? Mm-hmm. Uh, it really flipped me out, and I jumped backwards just as the car flew by me. Oh, no, it was um, it was from the fly, remember? Help me. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And he said that scared him enough to jump back and didn't even see the car. Wow. So we saved this dude and Cheapy, which is pretty exciting. Yeah. Uh, that was a while ago, but recently, actually two days ago, you have changed the course of the rest of my life. After listening to the Sauna and Viking podcasts, I have fallen in love with Scandinavia, so much so that I'm going to be a foreign exchange student in Finland for the entirety of next year. That's awesome. So we inspired uh, Noah to go to Finland because of the Sauna and Viking cast. Enjoy the lily. <laughs> So uh, much love and many thanks, and that's from Noah F. F. Nice. Noah Finster Finkelstein. That's his name now. It is. Um, thanks for that, Noah. We're glad you're alive. We hope you have a very good time in Finland. Um, and uh, we're glad Cheapy's doing well, too. I bet Noah never comes back. Like in a sinister way? or No, I bet he loves it so much that he's oh, like, gotcha. I'm here. Nice. Yeah. Uh, and, and, until winter hits. <laughs> that's it, but- um, if you, we always love hearing how we've saved your life or enriched your life or something like that. Um, we want to hear about it. You can tweet to us at SYSK Podcast. You can uh, join us on Facebook, facebook.com slash stuff you should know. And you can email us directly just between us and like five other people who are included on the email at stuffpodcast at discovery.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House of Work staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow.
Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?